Welcome back to another episode of the Adam Schefter Podcast. And on this week's episode, we will be joined by the former head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, the current CBS analyst, a 2020 Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee who will be inducted in the ceremony this summer due to the pandemic last summer, and the author of Heart and Steel, along with the writer Michael Holly, Bill Cower. Mr. Chin himself will join us and share some insights about his life and what he has planned for his Hall of Fame speech later this summer. And for those who are wondering, on last week's episode, I urge you to go back and listen to it. We had on Greg Olson, who is retiring from the NFL, who is joining Fox as their number two analyst working with Kevin Burkhart this summer. And he told the story of his eight-year-old son, TJ, who got a heart transplant early in June. And there aren't many podcasts we've done where I've heard from so many people. In fact, one person, a friend of mine out in Colorado, who hosts a radio show, Lou from Littleton, a.k.a. Tom Nugian, texted me this. Just finished the podcast. Fantastic. The first thing I thought of was God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Greg Olson was the perfect person to handle the situation with his son. What a great guy. The other text I got was from the senior vice president of production and talent development at Fox Sports, a man that had a huge role in hiring Greg Olson. And unsolicited, he sent me a text that said, it got a little dusty in my car on the drive home. Wow. Powerful stuff. So awesome that he's so open about it. I thanked him for the text and he wrote back. He didn't tell you the story of the rehearsal game he did about four years ago for us when he was in L.A. I paired him up with Kevin Burkhart then because Kevin lives in L.A., but I had no idea that they knew each other and had that history. It was maybe the best rehearsal audition I have ever seen. He's a complete natural. And anybody who heard Greg Olson on the podcast last week would understand that and know how charismatic, how thoughtful, how great the guy is. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to Greg Olson last week, I recommend you going back to listen to that. The next couple of weeks, we're going to take a little summer break. We rarely do that, but I think that the football world can do without us for a couple of weeks here. And when we get back, the question will be, how many, if any, franchise players will get long-term deals done by the July 15th deadline? Those players eligible for long-term deals include the Buccaneers wide receiver Chris Godwin, the Bears wide receiver Allen Robinson, the Jaguars offensive tackle Cam Robinson, the Jets safety Marcus May, and the Saints safety Marcus Williams all will be eligible to sign long-term deals and have to get it done by July 15th. And once that franchise deadline day comes and goes, that to me is when we start to gear back up to training camp, which of course will lead us into the questions of whether Aaron Rodgers shows up at training camp. How do the Texans decide to handle Deshaun Watson, who is not expected to be there in one form or another? We just don't know how that will shake out whether he'll be put on commissioner's exempt list, whether the team will issue him an excused absence, whether he'll be disciplined, whether he'll be clear. We don't know how that's going to turn out. But once we get past the July 15th deadline for franchise players to sign long-term deals, then the focus will shift to the quarterbacks. And then once camp begins in late July, the focus will shift to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And once it shifts to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, one of the inductees this year who was selected last year is Bill Cower, who spent much of the pandemic working with the reporter Michael Holly to write his book, Heart and Steel. And Bill was kind enough to give us some time and some tremendous insight into his life. But before we get to Bill Cower, a few things I want to tell you about first. First off, the NBA playoffs are in full swing, and who better to give you all the insider NBA information than the Woj Bomb creator himself, Adrian Wojnarowski, host of the Woj Pod. 
Be sure to download and follow the Woj Pod to stay up to date on all your NBA news wherever you get your podcasts. Also, The Ultimate Fighter is back, the reality show that brings top MMA prospects together under one roof to compete for a UFC contract is on ESPN Plus. Featherweight champ Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega coach men's bantamweights and middleweights who put their lives on hold for the chance to pursue their UFC dreams. Stream new episodes every Tuesday only on ESPN Plus. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com backslash UFC. And now, this week's guest, the man who was the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1992 to 2006. A man that is a Super Bowl champion head coach who was selected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2020. The former head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Bill Cowher. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Adam. So I have to tell you, when I reached out to you to do this podcast, yeah, you said to me, like the good coach you are, I want you to read my book, Heart and Steel, written with Michael Holly, yeah, uh, before you do this podcast. And I yeah. said to you, and I mean this, that I used to be an avid reader. When football season ended, I pick out two, three, four books that I really wanted to read. Yeah, yeah. And that was before I was married, before I had kids, before I had five Labradoodles running around my house, terrorizing <laughs> the house. And I would sit down and there were a few things that I enjoyed any more than reading books. Yeah. When you said to me, I want you to read my book before we do this podcast, I said, Bill, I haven't read a book in a couple of years, even during <clears> the <throat> pandemic. My attention span is all over the place. I got people from across the league calling and texting all the time. I'm on yeah. Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Bill, I'm not sitting down to read the book, but guess what? The last two nights in between playoff games, in between dog feedings and cleaning up dog vomit and everything like that, <laughs> I read Heart and Steel, written with Michael Holly, and I loved it, Bill. It was excellent. You did a great job with this. Well, thank you. Uh, it was, you know, we sat down and did this, and um uh, you know, it was one of those things you have to find the right person to collaborate with. And he was just the perfect person at the right time. How did you find Michael Holly there? How did, how did it come to be that he was the right person there? Well, you know, I think last year when we got into the Hall of Fame, um, you, know, you, you reflect on your football career, right? You know, you sit there and start thinking about all the people that were so instrumental in, in you getting there. And um, that Saturday night when David Baker comes on the set and then, all of the things that are planned, the pandemic hits and you sit back and say, wow, let me just start to reflect on your life. And it just seemed like the right time to talk about and to do a book that wasn't just a football book. You know, this, this, this book is more about football, family, and one's life journey of lessons learned. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, but he had to find the right guy. And, and I talked to a couple of people, Michael Hawley went to Point Park College in Pittsburgh, mm. grew up in the Akron Canton area. So you know, he was a guy, and I know he's in Boston now, but he understood football. He understood Pittsburgh. We actually met, ironically, in 1992, my first year of coaching. He came down to do an interview with me, and I talked to him. He was, he was a young journalist with the Akron Beacon Journal. <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, I have not met him since then. We've all Everything we've done through this collaboration has been through, over a phone. Oh, really? So you've not been in person with Michael Holly at all? Nope. Wow. Yeah. Wow. See, yeah. when I did a book with Mike Shanahan, I was in a timeline with him after he won his second Super Bowl. So his family, he said, hey, we're going to be down. He wanted to make it as easy as possible on him. He said, we're going to be down in Cabo. 
could you come down to Cabo? And so he went on vacation and I went to Cabo to work in some little dinky hotel room. And I worked with him in person while we were in Cabo. You didn't bring Michael Holly on vacation. He wasn't invited to New York. Wasn't invited. To, that's unbelievable. You're able to do it like that. It was, you know, during the pandemic. So, we, you know, there was really no traveling being done. And so we sat down through the course of last summer. Um, and, you know, he said, and it was funny because as he was talking, I said, well, I don't want to, I want to do more of the football, but I want to do, I want to do more than just a football book. And, and he said, well, then if that's the case, he goes, I'll tell you what the first thing one of my professors told me, the first journalistic class I took was the only logical order is chronological. So we sat down just talking about me growing up, uh, my college pro career from playing to coaching. Uh, and then, you know, everything else that went along with that. And, you know, like, I think he was almost like a licensed therapist for me. I was sitting out many times. I felt like I should be laying down in the couch somewhere, you know, talking to him, you know. So it was, it, was, it was through the course of doing this with him, over 50 hours of talking with him, you find yourself laughing. Uh, you find yourself crying, um, getting mad, being happy, and just experiencing the gambit of emotions and a lot of reflection going on yeah. about, you know, how you are. So the people that were so instrumental in who you are today. And the really the best part about that for you is he has to do all the hard work as somebody who's been in his yeah. position, you just yeah. sit and think and reflect. Yeah. And it's a really cool process for you. And it's really exhausting for him and really tiring for him to have to do that book, but he pulled it off. And as I'm reading it, there were so many little things in there that piqued my interest. Like right. for instance, you ever imagine what life would have been like, if you had gone to work for Bill Parcells instead of Marty Schottenheimer, as Bill Parcells wanted you to do. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was, you sit down and, and I remember that opportunity was presented to me, but I just remember going with the fact that, you know what, Marty gave me my first chance. And, you know, I was playing, I was a special team. I was the captain of the Philadelphia Eagles in 1984. I got hurt in the fourth game and I said, okay, I could play. And I just signed a contract. Marty says, you want to get into coaching? So I decided at that point, you know, just just to follow your instincts and you know, go with go with go with your gut feeling a lot of times. And, you know, and, you know, Marty gave me a chance to coach when I, ever, you know, I knew I wanted to coach, but to start at the professional level in Cleveland. And then he goes to Kansas City and I decided to go out there with him. So, yeah, it, it was it could have been different. And ironically enough, Bill Bill Belichick, as you, as, as you see in the book, is. We got to know each other because, you know, I decided I got moved from defensive backs to linebackers. He moved from linebackers to defensive backs. They hired Al Groh. We got together for a period yeah. of time in, in New York and became really good friends by at that time. He was at the Giants. I was with the Chiefs. We'd share information when we had common opponents and because we're two different you know conferences. And then all of a sudden we're both the finalists for the Cleveland Browns job in 91. He gets the Browns job. Okay, that's great. And then all of a sudden, 92, I go to Pittsburgh. We go from friends to adversaries in like, like one year. <laughs> um, what we, the time that you spent with him, you went back to New York to study film and compare notes and study him. Yeah. What's one takeaway that you learned from him during that time, if you remember? You know, I, I just think the, between the both of us, there was so much about technique. It was, it, you know, there was like the little things about playing linebacker. I played linebacker, but, you know, how do you coach it? You know, how do, how do you bring everything together and, understand how do you introduce a scheme you know how, how do you deal with different players and you know so I learned that and as I was trying to talk to him about defensive back play and you know I learned so much of that through Marty and Larry Weaver who taught Marty so you know I never played defensive back before too so it's more like just a young coach of dealing with the professional players going back and okay now I'm going to coach linebackers I, mean, I, I know the defensive back so it was just sharing knowledge and both of us had such great respect for the game. We both had great mentors. And it was just, it was kind of fun just to talk about different techniques, different styles and, um, of coaching. I brought up the book and I brought up Bill Parcells. And on page 191, he said something to you that resonated with me an awful lot. And I think it's probably applicable to you in coaching or anyone who's in a front office job or even somebody who's a reporter. And he said, when you first get into the league, it's a part of your life. After a while, after a while longer, it becomes your life. That is so true, Bill. It is so true. And, and, and I think that has always resonated with me. And I'll never forget having that conversation with him prior to playing the Dallas Cowboys in 2004. And 
it just, I, I just could never, I couldn't stop thinking about that. And as I just started thinking, God, there's got to be more to life than just me in a locker room with a bunch of men. And I know it's not exactly how it was meant to be said, but that's what I, that's how it resonated with me. And I looked around and I knew my wife was not in a great place at the time. And, and then we turned around and win a championship the following year. And our life got even more public. And we were such an isolated family, just kind of a, a family just wanted to be normal. Normality was something we were always seeking. And now we were losing more and more of that. And so that had a lot to do with my decision to step down because from the time he said that, I'm like, you're right. Because the more you get into it, the more you become, it becomes your life full time. And, you know, I, I never, and I never wanted that to happen. Family was still had to be first for me. Family, then football. And obviously a degree of faith had to be involved with that as well. But don't you think that that's the case in any line of work to do it the right way? You have to be fully immersed in it where it doesn't become just a part of your life, as Bill Parcells told you, it becomes your life. It just becomes your life. I, but, but Adam, in my, from my perspective, you have to have balance in life. And well, if it's, it, it, and I'm just, it, to me, it's just, it, there, there's a degree of balance that everybody's is different. And again, you know, you can be, you can let that element of what you're doing professionally dictate how you're going to run your life. Or I know for me, that my family was the balance for me. When I, I never brought my work home. I never took home to work. And I just thought that that was something that I was losing. I mean, the more you get involved, particularly in the public eye, right? the more that the social media became a part of what we were doing, you can never get away from work. So that was the struggle that I think I had to a large degree was that losing that normality because of the social media and because of where the kind of, you know, where we are in today's world. I, I find that with my job, right? Like people say all the time, well, how do you do it? And it's, it's, it's just a lifestyle. You, you, you're never fully off. The phone could ring at any time with anything happening. And I think back to the days when I first started covering Denver and a beat back in the early nineties. And I saw Bill Cowers an assistant in Kansas city back in those days. It, it, it was not your life. And it becomes your life and you seek that balance. You try to find the balance. You do the best job you can to find that balance. But the work part is so dominating. It just controls so much. Yeah. And, and, and I never, I never thought it controlled anything. It's just that you can, you know, I, I, cause, cause you love it. Like what you're doing, you love what you're doing. You know, you're, you, you love staying connected and, you know, you keep pushing to make sure that you're on top of this and that, because that's the standard that you set for yourself. And if you want to be great at something, you're going to have to continue to push yourself to be more involved, engaged in what you're doing, because that's what the great ones are able to do. But, you know, you still have to have that degree of making sure you have some separation and be able to, uh, you know, get away from it all and compartmentalize your, what your work from your, from your, your home life. At least that, that was my perspective, particularly raising three girls and having all the women in my life. So I think it's, you know, you'll see as you look in the book is a lot of the mentors I had, Marty Schottenheimer, Dan Rooney, um, my father, they all also had very strong, confident, nurturing women. And so the women in my life, you talk about my mom, you talk about my late wife, Kay, you talk about my three daughters, Pat Schottenheimer, Pat Rooney, and my wife today, V, they, I never realized how important the women in my life were, even though I was involved in a dominant, a, a dominant, pretty much a man's world. What about your three daughters today? It seemed like two of them married athletes, professional athletes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the third one didn't marry a professional athlete. No, no. He, she's, she's married. I, Liz actually out in Denver. Um, and, uh, he runs a, a park out there in the forestry and, 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 and he's kind of a, a forester, forest, forestry guy. And she's doing great. So there, I've been so blessed to have, you know, three son-in-laws that are just, they're, they're different. Two of them are athletes. One plays and played in the NBA, still playing today in Japan. That's Ryan Kelly married to my youngest daughter, Lindsay. And then Kevin Westgarth won a cup with the Kings. And now he's working in the front office in, in the NHL. And, you know, so, it, you know, athletics have been a big part of everything that we've done. And then I go around and marry my, my wife, V, now, who's a musician. So she's brought more balance again. Talk about balance. A little bit of musical element to that to our family as well. Do your two son-in-laws in sports come to you for advice and questions? 
No, but I give them a lot of advice. <laughs> <laughs> I would so, hope that you would, and I'd hope that they would listen. Yeah, they do. They listen. So, but we do. We, you know, we talk, and it, it, it's, you know, I think the best thing about the one thing about sports, I think the one thing about the three girls all being in sports, they're great. They're great partners for, for particularly for their for their um, their husbands, and because they understand the pressures that are involved with professional sports. They understand the mm-hmm. ebb and flow that takes place in terms of a season, in terms of, you know, what you have to do from a season to off season. So there's, there's, there's always this, and they grew up in that. They understood there's, there's an off season and there's a during the season. So do it well, during the season, you, you kind of loosen up off season, you, you reel it back in. So those, that's the kind of things that I think having someone who's a great partner, a great friend, and obviously had been your, your, your spouse, it really helps that person at least feel comfortable enough that they're what they're doing. They can be all involved in it. But it also seemed to me that the one thing that you took away of all the pieces of advice that you got, it was your father that left you with three different pieces of wisdom that impacted your life. And one of those was never quit because that gives you the perseverance that you need. Another was work harder than the next guy when, and you're working when no one's watching. And the third one was, Never let anybody or anyone intimidate you. Yeah. Do you think about those three things, those three lessons that your father imparted to you and how do they impact your life today? And, and they have and always have. And I, I will always remember, you know, the work hard part was, it was, I talk about it in the book a little bit that, you know, when I was, you know, I was getting ready to go out. And I was going to go down and go to the pool and play. And he's telling me, well, you know, Johnny's probably over there lifting. I go, well, Dad, I'll lift when I get back. He goes, oh, that's fine. You don't have to. I said, no, I will. He goes, no, go ahead. And so I, you know, so he'll probably be, he'll be running while you're lifting. So he'll probably, he'll get two workouts in, but that's fine. One will be fine for you. I'm going, I'm going to the pool. So I, I go, I go out down, do the steps. I go about a block. I go, Ugh. I walk back. I go, I can't, I can't let him get two workouts in. So I, I, I go, I'm going to lift. And he goes, whatever. And I said, so I went in and lift. I go, I'm going to the pool now. He goes, have fun. I'm going like, oh, <laughs> so, so, you know, he kind of gets gotten, you know, he knew, he knew how to say the right things and he was great with numbers, Adam. And that's the mm. one thing I never thought about. Like he was an accountant and he always had the number two pencils and he had everything so meticulously on his desk. And I said, you know, numbers. I, and I was very good with numbers. I love math. And I think, how many, and of anything that you can do for coaching and being a teacher in math, I always had the ability to understand how much, how much clock I can run. If I take it down to three seconds, and if we run the ball three times, we can run off a minute, 45 seconds. And so hmm. a lot of the ability I had to close games out, which I'm very proud of, of that fact, is my ability to look at the clock in the third quarter and then realize how many series are left. And that wow. if we had a lead, time was our, our ally. And so I would shut down the passing game because I realized there's only so much time left and I can use up this much time and take away an extra possession from them. Then we got the game won. Wow. Wow. See, so your dad always taught you the things that mattered and helped yeah. influence you later on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, did you almost write this book 10 years ago? Did a version of this almost come out 10 years ago? And was it also with Michael Holly, or how did that work? I have written a book 10 years ago, 2010. And it with another writer, but he come back with it. I just couldn't go through with it. It was all football. And, and it was just when I was looking, I thought about, I wrote this book around the fall of 2010. Well, 2010 is not, was not a great year. I just lost my father. I just lost my wife. I just moved to New York. And so I said, you know, I'm going to write a book in case I forget, you know, some stories. But then as I read it, I go, you know, this isn't just me because it, I wasn't just about football. And if I'm writing a book just about football, it really doesn't reflect who I am as a person. And I said, you know, I, I need to be in a better place. And so I took the book, bought the rights from the book, and I still have that book today. And it never went to publish, never got to print at all. I got the first version back. I decided I just can't do this book. And, you know, and it was, you know, it's because it was, it was just, there was, it was just football stories. And I just said, you know, there's just, I, that's just not who I am. And, and so here I am 10 years, there's 10 years later, you know, and, and I'm married again. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I've been, I've been in TV for 10 years. Um, and I sit here and all of a sudden, you know, I, I thought I walked away from a hall of fame 
career. I knew at the time that I finally did for sure at the age of 49, stepping down. I knew it was a good football team that's going to win more. But family was more important to me. And all of a sudden, you know, here I am on that Saturday night in January, or uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a David Baker's telling me I'm in the Hall of Fame. It just, it just was such an amazing time. And almost like, it, not that I needed validation for my football career, but it just seemed like I put an exclamation point on it. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits. It just seemed like, you know what? The pandemic made us all start thinking about other things, right? Yeah. We all became very reflective during that time. You know, did we live a privileged life? Social justice issues coming up. And I thought, wow, what a great time to intermix family, football, and the lessons learned through one's life's journey, right? And so, and, and so I just felt like, man, there's, there's so many things I can offer. I, I didn't make the right choices a lot of times. I got to the fork in the road. I made some decisions. So I thought that this memoir can help somebody else who's going down that same path, who reaches that fork in the road. I know Yogi Bear always says, just take it. Yeah. But I would just say, you know, think about what you're doing, but don't look back, you know, look forward. Cause you know, you're going to take risk and it's okay to take some risk. I always said, I would rather, I would rather risk and failed than never to have risked at all. We can live a very safe life if we choose to. So I share a lot of these lessons I learned because I hopefully it can help somebody else. Did Michael Holly get to see the first version of the book before he wrote this he version of the book? Okay, yeah. good. Because that's valuable information. I'm sure it was helpful to him in putting it together to recall some of those things. But also, yes. I think about how much your life has changed in those 10 years, as you alluded to. And 2010 yeah. was such a devastating personal year for you, losing your dad first, then losing your wife that year. And that, that, was, that seemed like it was a very uh, trying ordeal as it would be. And then, again, in the 10 years since, you get remarried. Your daughters get married and you now have five grandchildren. Do, do you stick your do you stick your chin at them when you when when you get mad at them and start getting their faces? Is, is it anything like that? No, no. But I, they, obviously they must see it because there's a, a couple of the grandkids. You'll see it. One of the pictures in the book is it's got everybody in there. There's four of the kids are in the book. One's in my daughter's tummy. It's just a, she's in the book, too. Um, that's Ruth. But. Uh, a lot of them now have some of the facial expressions that they're starting to come out. If they get mad, you start to see them, they squint their eyes and they do this and stick their tongue out when they're, when they're trying to do something. So I, I, I think I know where they're getting it from. So, um, <laughs> so we'll see how long they, if, if, if their parents can correct them from that. <laughs> how has being a grandfather altered your perspective on life? You know, you know what it allows you to do? to have great teaching moments. And I've had opportunities with, and as they get older, there'll be more of those. But, you know, you get to be four, five, six, and the oldest one is six. When you're with them, you know, I just cherish the time where we can just sit down and talk and just talk about how they're doing. How do you like school? Um, hmm. What do you want to do when you grow up? You know, and just you provoke thought, you listen to them. And if there's teaching moments that come up, you have, you have an opportunity to apply it. And, you know, I think when you think about a coach, what, what are good coaches? They're good teachers, you know, and, and that's, that's what, it, that's what coaching is all about. It's, it's, it's being able to understand who the individual the student is, what makes them tick, and how can you make them better as people? Because if you make them better as people, their professional element will take care of itself. I want everyone to be a better person when they got around. I, I think about when I, when I went to Pittsburgh, Dan Rooney, I went there a brash young coach. who had all the answers, just confident, scared to death on the inside. But at the same time I left there, I was a better coach, but I was also a better husband. And I was a better father because the elements of family was the core values of everything that they stood for. And so I just was able to take a competitive element of what I was able to do, the teaching elements of what I was able to do, and uh, use those moments to make people better. Sorry to go back into your past, but the book does that. How much would Kay, your late wife, have enjoyed being around your five grandchildren? Oh, uh, you know, I, I think about, you think about that all the time. She would have been great with them. And, and mm. you know, I think about that night when I go into the Hall of Fame, I think about the fact that, my parents didn't have a chance to see that, how proud they would be, how Kay didn't have a chance to see that, how proud she would be. Dan Rooney, how proud he would have been. Marty Schottenheimer, how proud he would have been. So you think about, you know, yes, the people that see you and congratulate you, but I think about the people who weren't there. 
the people who are with you through your life's journey, who helped you become the person you were and helped you achieve all the things that people are throwing at you. They were the persons behind the scenes. You know, they were the persons that were there to pick you up, to give you those words of encouragement, the words of courage that, you know, that kept you going, that made you a better person. And all of a sudden, then, you know, to see the grandkids, she, she would have been very proud. But I still feel like you know, we talk about it, and, and then I talk about it in the book, you know, you know, when you talk about grieving, when we lost her with the three girls, those are personal moments. It, it, you know, it's personal reflection, and, and it takes time. And not everybody can process it the same way. So, you know, I talk about it, not that I did it the right way, but, you know, the biggest thing we do is we don't, we, we talk about her a lot. She's never not been here. You know, she would have loved, you know, she would have loved to see this. Oh, look, she looks just like her. She got a little bit of K in her. So, you know, I think we talk about her. I think anybody that's when they're, when they're past, the best thing you could do is, you know, not grieve, but celebrate their life. Talk about what the, the great things that they were able to give you and pass along. Allow their legacy to be part of what you say about them. And so her legacy continues today. And we try to share those moments uh, with, um, with the kids. So there are a lot of people that grieve over a lot of people. What did you learn about the grieving process that you could say to coach up people out there who are grieving right now? Um, be patient. Take time. Um, be thankful for the time you had with them. Um, know that there's a greater spirit than all of us and things happen for reasons. I do believe in fate. I also believe in faith. Um, and, um, so I think it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's something that again, when you lose someone, you, you lost them physically, but you'll never lose the memories of what you have with them. And the only way you'll lose it, if you're afraid to talk about it. So talk openly about it and be respectful because some people have a hard time with it. And that's fine because it takes people longer than other people to talk about it. Some people, if they're uncomfortable, that's fine too. You know, it, it, one's personal relationship with another, one's personal relationship with your um, uh, mortality. It's not easy. I go back to a book I read Tuesdays with Maury okay. and I made all our kids read that book. I thought it was a fantastic book talking about mortality talking about death. And again, it goes back to the same thing. What can you take away? What can you celebrate from that life? And what can we continue to have that legacy be with that person who we've lost? Because, you know, at some, at some point, the more you talk about the things that you loved about that person, you the other parts of it won't matter. And that person will always be there in the back of your head. So you really, they're just not there in spirit. They'll never be lost great advice. And here's my words of wisdom on the Tuesdays with Maury book. I don't know if you realize this, but Mitch Album wrote that book. Yes. And Mitch Album was my idol and mentor ah. in college at the University of Michigan. Wow. So I got to meet Mitch when I was a student writing for the Michigan Daily at the University of Michigan. And I literally would try to mimic and imitate everything that Mitch did back in the day. And so when Mitch went to write his very first book on Bo Schembechler, he asked me to be his research assistant. Wow. And so I spent my senior year at Michigan uncovering all sorts of tales about Bo Schembechler and feeding Mitch all these anecdotes, some of which made it into the book, many of which didn't, but that was my senior year. And then when Mitch did his second book on the Fab Five, he was about a month or two into it, and he called me up and he said, I've had a really hard time getting a hold of Jalen Rose's father, Jimmy Walker. Can you please help me? And 24 hours later, I called him. I said, here's Jimmy Walker's number. I think he's going to be expecting your call. And he goes, what are you, some kind of super sleuth or something? <laughs> and then, and then for the very first time in his book writing career that he didn't use me as his research assistant, it was for Tuesdays with Maury. Wow. So you see how instrumental I was to Mitch Album's success. As soon as he doesn't use me, he becomes an international <laughs> bestseller like Dr. Seuss with one of the greatest selling books of all time with lessons that even Bill Cowher knows today. Well, thank, thank goodness I didn't ask you to help me with my book. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a disaster, Bill. You would not have wanted that. It would have gone the other way. No, it would not have worked it out. It would have been great. It would not have worked out. But one of that did bring up that did raise a point to me when I'm reading it. And you mentioned all those people and you're going to be at the hall of fame this summer being inducted 
after being selected in 2020. And you mentioned all the people that won't be there. Kay won't be there. Mr. Rooney won't be there. Morty Schottenheimer will not be there. Your mother and father will not be there. And yet there will be all these new people in your life who will be there. Veronica will be there. Your three son-in-laws will yeah. be there. Yeah. I take it your five grandchildren will oh, be there. Absolutely. And that will be a moment in life where you reflect on all the people who contributed, as you're saying, to your rise and your path and your success. And yet all these people who hold such a prominent spot in your life. To me, that's the pinnacle of life. And it's also the transition of life going around to where all these new people are a part of this incredibly special and personal moment that cap your career and yet some of the people who aren't there who contributed so much will not be there. Yeah. And it's so funny. You, you, you use that word transition. And it's so funny when you said that, Adam, because I've always thought that life is about transition from one phase of life to another, for me, from coaching to TV, from one wife to another, from growing up in Pittsburgh to being a full-time New Yorker balance. Okay. in life, whether it be family, whether it be faith, whether whatever it may be, and in perspective, you're having the right perspective. And, you know, the one thing I just, like you said, all the players and coaches that, that I was around and all the times that helped me be on that podium that night, it wasn't just me. It was all the coaches I coached with. It's all the players that played for me. And everyone will tell you, the one thing I used to always talk about was perspective, how you view yeah. circumstance. And I used to tell them every time, when I started training camp, I said, let me just tell you something. The season's a long season. And so you go through the ebb and flow of it. But just remember this, this is the proper perspective to have if we want to have sustainability and be consistent. You're never as good as you think you are. And you're never as bad as they say you are. It's never as good as it appears. And it's never as bad as it seems. So those were the things we talked about a lot. So don't get caught up in all the good times and don't beat yourself up in the bad times. So, you know, trying to, you know, navigate your way through the murky waters is what a season is about. And to come out on the other side and to say, okay, here are my strengths. Let's accentuate that. Okay, where's our weaknesses? Let's try to mask those things and find a way mm. to work around those. And that's what the process of a season is for football teams. And it takes the collaboration of coaches, the collaboration of players, the support staff, the, the, the secretaries are in there on Tuesday nights typing up the game plan, staying in there to whatever to get it done. The trainers are down there getting players ready to play on Sunday. The people over there navigating, we, we lost a player. How can we create some cap room to get someone who's on the, who's on the waiver list? It's just... It's amazing how the building has to work in sync and everybody has to accept their role and then be you know, passionate about the role and be as good as you can be. And, and that's, that to me is just, that's why it isn't just one person in the game of football. They do get recognized. I'm going to get recognized. But boy, it was all the people around us that helped make that happen. Well, you'll stand there that night as a representation of all the people who helped you get there. And as you're standing up there, Bill, have you given any thought as to what could or might be going through your mind as you're being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? You know, I sit here and I've had two years to work on this speech because so, <laughs> so I, I can't screw this one up, right? So, um, but you know, they, they, they've cut it down, and, and I and I do think about how do you how do you put it into an eight minutes speech? You know. Everything that you just capsized that you talked about, the people that help mold who you are. And then, you know, then you go out there and you, you go on that, the, 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 the field and you battle and, you, you know, the, the word, and you come out and you run on top. And all the people that were so, you know, a part of that, not just the people that, that you were in there battling with, but the support people, the family and everything else. So I, I'm going to try to do it in a manner which will be a little unique because a lot of times you people have had 15, 20 minute speeches where you can kind of go chronologically. It, you know, when you try to cut it down to eight minutes, which are giving us the eight minute speech to do this year, um, I think you just got to, I'm, I'm going to take a little different approach than that. Well, you know, I'm glad they cut it down to eight minutes because I think there's so many people that have to speak, right? And used to be there were people like Steve Young's dad that basically took the situation hostage and like spoke forever. And it's just, it's too long. Right. It's too right. long. Right. You can't do it. You're better off eight minutes short, get yeah. to the point and yeah. move. On. That's more memorable than going on. But I will also tell you that it's also a burden 
that you've had two years to have to write this, right? <laughs> know, yeah. Like that, that, that just sits on your mind. Oh. Like you need to just do it. Like yeah. you want a little time yeah. to think about it, process it, get to all the people that you want to thank, but too long is not good. I remember Jim Harbaugh asked me to speak to the University of Michigan football team a couple of months in advance. Bill, every night, every night, I thought about what I wanted to say right. and my message would change. And I'm like, I just got to go talk to this team already. Like, I just got to <laughs> right. get, get right. this done because that right. moment was as, was as meaningful to me. as something like this is to you where you get to go talk and you want it to be just perfect. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it, it'll be good. And, and I'm glad that they did because it would be hard last year to talk about a celebration of, of this nature when the country was in such turmoil. Right. I mean, just with everything that was going on. So they did it right by postponing for another year. And I think now, I think with the opportunity to just have the right perspective, you know, it seems like we're kind of on the other side of this pandemic. Things are still starting to open up again. Certainly we can't relax. I, I understand all that, but you know, you're starting to see some degree of normality coming yeah. back. So it'll be nice to be able to then get, be a little reflective. And what's also interesting to me is we reflect on your life and your career and your book, Heart and Steel written with Michael Holly is the fact that you've now been at CBS just about as long as you coached in yeah. Pittsburgh. So there is some 14 or 15 year old football fan out there that never saw you coach a game, but has seen you on CBS, which is hard for me to process because I still, I, I look at you as this coach. Yeah. I look at you as that guy, but some of these young fans of today have never seen you in that role. Is that odd to you to think that you've now been on TV almost yeah. as long as you were the head coach of the Steelers? I mean, this will be my 15th year at CBS and I coached 15 years in, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh. So the CBS has been so great, honestly, with Sean McManus, David Burson, and the, the, you know, the platform I've had to work with JB uh, the entire time oh, and Broomer the entire time. I mean, great. it's been, you know, and now we got Nate and Phil, step down into this into the studio it's really been it's five guys that just have great respect for each other um it, it's a great platform man you know i you know I'm, I'm blessed to be able to be there i continue to try to get better at it um there's so much respect for the game and try to give the viewpoint of you know we what we see on the outside and as you well know doing what you do there's a lot more that goes on the on the inside of those walls uh than, than what we see on the outside so um but, so, you know, it, it really is it, – it, you sit back and you just think, wow, this is my 15th year of doing this. And like you said, there are people – some people come up and they say, hey, aren't you that Time Warner cable guy? I go, yeah. Yeah, I used to be a, <laughs> used to be a coach too, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, so it, 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 it is funny because you're right. There's a lot of people who never seen me coach. And is there any way – you mentioned in the book that there have been owners who have called you. How many owners? I'm curious. How many owners have called, reached out, try to get you to come back to coach? Well, they, not not many, not many recently. I mean, I think there's been inquiries. There was, you know, like, I go back to 2010 when I wrote that book. You know, I had just lost my wife, and you know, I wasn't sure. Was there a chance I could go back? Yeah, and, and I think I talked to a lot more people then, um, and I just wanted to listen. But the more I listened, it never really got serious because I kept thinking I just knew that what it would entail, and you know, and I didn't have the family or support group around me at the time. And I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do it by myself. And, and I just, it, there was more to life. I had to figure out where I was in my life and, mm. you know, and then, and you know, I just lost my wife and then all of a sudden I meet Veronica V and she's a musician, you know, Jets fan. Um, and so Ooh, that's, uh, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was tough for her. For a while. <laughs> I, I, so I sympathize with you there a little bit. So, uh, but, but uh, <laughs> But, you know, the more and, and she was so supportive and said, listen, if you want to do it and I and, and get it, I always get around that. It was around December. People would start making inquiries. You know, are you interested? You know, and people are like, oh, well, you know, and the more I, I, I talk through it, I go, I feel like in here in the city, I got some normality. And I always yeah. wanted that normality. And I it never got to the point where I was really even that serious. And then it got this, you know, then I just start saying, no, I'm really not that interested because I didn't want. You know, I, I, I had this new life and I transitioned to this new, not, I was still trying to get better at TV. And yeah, I had an off season. I'm like, man, having an off season now, we can travel. We start doing some travel. We start going to Italy, we start going to Israel. Be, be, my wife has family that's in Israel. So I said, you know, there's, this is things I could never do before. So I was doing things I never had an opportunity to do before. And I was enjoying it. I was enjoying the normality 
of having the, a job during the football season, before that law season came, it was just whatever you want to do. And I said, I've never had that option before. So I, I didn't need to go back to do what I did before. Like I said, I didn't need to validate anything. But certainly when that Hall of Fame came, it certainly put an exclamation point on my career. Could we ever get to a point where you've done enough of that traveling, enough of the balancing, enough of the enjoyment and relaxation to where one day you could ever go back to coaching ever again, Bill? I don't know if I ever get back to coaching. I, I, I still talk to a lot of people around the league. Um, I still try to help them. I'm a voice and a great ear to people, try to give some advice, some wisdom that I've learned along the way. I've talked to a lot of number of the coaches that have been going in for some of these interviews and some of the agents have asked me to talk to them. I don't share that information with many people because it doesn't serve any purpose. I want people to feel comfortable enough to come to me because my, my interest isn't just with the Pittsburgh Steelers or whatever it be in New York with the jet, you know, whatever. My, I have a great respect for the game and I understand what coaching is involved with. I understand how running an organization, I was blessed to be in one that I thought was run very, very well. There was transparency. There was, there was a, a, a way of working within the building that you knew what the protocols were that you needed to go through. And that's what for young coaches they need to understand is how does that building work? Do you have collaboration? Do you have transparency? Who are you communicating with? You know, and so you have to build those type of things up. And it takes time to build the trust and to have more input. You have to earn that right. So these are things along the way. And I know every, every building is different. That I try to educate or just give wisdom to young coaches who are, who are going into it for the first time. So I enjoy doing that. I enjoy helping other people and sharing with them my wisdom, which is really goes back to me with sharing my life with this book is just, just if, if, you know, if there's any little bit of that can help someone, then it's worth it because that's what your legacy is. It's what you're able to give to other people. See, I was thinking as you were saying this, what's more important in life than keeping your wife happy? Very few, very few things, right? No, you got to no, do that. Absolutely. So what would make your wife, what would make Veronica any happier than she's the Jets winning a Super Bowl? So I was that you're in you could all the times the Jets have changed head coaches, all the times they've gone through you, there could have been something along the way that you could have done to help the Jets win a Super Bowl and help your wife reach that level of happiness that you've brought her so many other times. The happiness that we have, Adam, is going down to our local French brassier. We, we go there on a Saturday, have a brunch. That's the happiness that we are enjoying. It's called normality. Uh, you know, I, I, let me tell you something, all the coaches I've had the privilege and honor of working with all the people who come from the NFL to come work in TV. I say it all the time to them. You will not have the highs and lows that you get from working within an organization, but you will not be up Sunday night at two in the morning, wondering why you ran a certain play, why a certain player got hurt, what you're going to do this upcoming week. You'll sleep easier. You'll leave easier. Life will be better. It won't be as exciting. It won't be as depressing. It'll be more balanced and more even. And you know what, Adam, I say? I get to coach 32 teams every Sunday, and I haven't lost a game in 14 years. <laughs> and it's the best, right? I mean, what's better it's than okay. that? No, it's okay. I'm okay with it that. Keep, it keeps you young. Hey, Bill, I want to thank you for the time today. Everybody out there, read Heart and Steel, written by Bill Cower with Michael Holly, and congratulations on the Pro Football Hall of Fame honor this summer. Well-deserved. We look forward to watching your eight-minute induction speech, <laughs> and I thank you very much for the time today, Bill. Thanks, Adam, and a lot of respect for you and the job that you do. You're much respected throughout the National Football League, and I think uh, anybody, listens to, anybody listens to this broadcast right now can understand why. And there is the former head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, a man going to the Hall of Fame this summer, and the author, along with Michael Holly, of Heart and Steel, a book that is well worth reading over this upcoming July 4th holiday. As for this past holiday, Father's Day, I dedicated myself to watching the golfer that I selected for my weekly golf pool that has become the focus of my off-season fun. I shared the story last week about how I got into this golf pool with some friends of mine where we pick a golfer each week and you get the corresponding points based off his winnings. Well, the man that I chose for the U.S. Open was one John Rahm. That was my pick. And John Rahm started out Thursday, played decent, played a little bit better on Friday. Saturday, not so much. Had a double bogey on the backside. And as soon as he did that and he threw the ball away in disgust, I was disgusted myself. I said, there goes my chance to win this tournament, to vault, to stay in first place. 
And I was really bummed out. And I had a couple of people around the league who know that I'm in this pool. And they texted me, hey, John Rahm's got a chance Sunday. And I said, no, he double bogeyed it away on Saturday. Well, to my surprise, John Rahm made my Father's Day. And I want to personally thank John Rahm and congratulate him for becoming the first Spaniard to win the U.S. Open. That was awesome. And his post-game speech was so great. Giving thanks to Seve Ballesteros, thanking him and paying tribute to that guy for not being able to win the U.S. Open, but for finally bringing a U.S. Open championship to Spain. And what it meant to me personally, honestly, (laughs) it wrapped up my Father's Day. And that was the most fun that I've had watching a sporting event. And I can't tell you how long. I jumped off my couch when he made birdie putts at 17 and 18, a 22-foot putt and an 18-foot putt. I can't believe that I am this into golf and this into every shot, and I live and die with every shot that my weekly golfer takes. John Rahm took me on a journey that I will always remember on Father's Day, and I want to personally thank him for it. Everyone in Spain will remember him as the first guy to win a U.S. Open from that country, and I always will remember him for making my 2021 Father's Day complete and for elevating us in the standings, keeping us in first place and widening the gap between him, between first place and the competition. John Rahm, you are the man. Man, that was awesome. And I love watching that, and I want to thank him for that. And I also want to thank Bill Cower for taking the time to spend with us on this podcast this week. I want to thank my producer, Christina Buswell, for putting up with me and putting together this podcast, as she always does such a tremendous job. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. And that, folks, will be a wrap for a couple of weeks. We're going to shut down, try to tune out the noise, focus in on our golf picks for the next two weeks, see if we can come up with two more winners here before we get back to work shortly after the July 4th break and resume this very podcast in this very space going forward as we get ready to embark upon the 2021-17 game season. Oh, boy. Should be a special one. As for these next few weeks, going to try to do some things that I don't ordinarily get the time to do much during the season. Maybe read some. Certainly want to watch some movies. Like to watch the movie Fatherhood. The people who are promoting that were kind enough to send me a gift bag for Father's Day with all sorts of fatherhood products, a fatherhood tool bag, fatherhood deodorant. Actually smelled pretty good. So I'm looking forward to watching the movie that One of the local newspapers in my town called a treasure, I think is the exact phrase, or maybe it was a gem, treasure gem. We're going to watch Fatherhood. We're going to watch Kevin Hart's newest movie, and we're fired up to do that here in the coming days. Have a great July 4th holiday. Have a great summer. We'll be back in early July, and until then, be well and stay safe.